Stories on Media. This is Coming Out Stories. It's a podcast about one of the most important conversations of your life. I'm Emma Goswell. Thanks for joining us for probably one of the most remarkable and important coming out stories I've ever heard. June is Pride Month in the US, with many cities choosing to celebrate around June the 28th to commemorate the moment in 1969 when drag queens, trans women and the gay community fought back against appalling treatment from the NYPD. The one-day riot outside the Stonewall Inn in New York was seen as the start of the modern-day LGBT rights movement. To commemorate that moment, we've tracked down one of the remaining veterans of that night. Martin Boyce. He was a drag queen at Stonewall and he has the most incredible recollections of growing up gay in Brooklyn in the 1950s and 60s and of course of that fateful night 50 years ago. I always knew. I always knew. There were incidents in my childhood that were very striking, big mistakes. I mean in New York at the time people lived in the same neighborhood maybe for 50 years. So New York was a collection of villages, really. Generally, the working class areas were generally villages. So to come out was very difficult because everybody knew your parents, everybody knew your history, everybody knew everything from the moment you were born. So it could be a tremendous disgrace. But I had a very unusual father. He was a working class man. Uh, He drove a taxi, owned a taxi. He trained boxers and he trained fighting dogs. They all thought that his son, when I was born, I, he said they all cheered in the bar that that guy is going to be a killer. Well, it turned out... <laughs> You're a killer drag queen instead. <laughs> <laughs> you got some killer heels. <laughs> My father even had a cookie jar which he put um, bail money in. So explain why he would have to do that. He knew New York and he knew who I was hanging around with. And he thought they would bound to be trouble. So he was worried that you would get arrested? You mean? Oh, he thought I would get arrested. And did he? No. Amazingly. Mm. Maybe of a two dozen incidents, I was never arrested. But I'm guessing you knew people that were. Oh, people around, around me were. For, for what? Vagrancy, loitering, disturbing the peace, whatever thing they wanted, whatever they wanted to come up with. But they were essentially gay men living their lives. Always, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Especially minorities. They were very, very uh, tough on minorities. But you see, what happened was what covered me, sadly. What covered me was my mother was an invalid. So I was given a great deal of leeway in the neighborhood. Because the worst thing you could call anybody, even a murderer or whatever you wanted, it was a fag. I mean, that's the worst thing you could call anybody. I mean, people that were released from prison had more prestige than fag, than if they had murdered. Really? In fact, much more, because it was a butch thing. It was a butch world. I was raised in the 50s. Stonewall would have never happened in the 50s. There was no era in the United States history more tightened and more horrid than the 50s. That's why there was Marilyn Monroe, because her look was above, you know, the censors could not censor that. So that was the way of fighting back. Hollywood was very important to gay people. That's how it was being fighting back, because there was a super sexuality, because there was a super repression. I remember saying that my cousin, who was very beautiful, was getting fat. It wasn't because of me, but she disappeared in three months because she was pregnant. I remember looking into the Hudson River where my father would take me over to see the ships and I was counting all these jellyfish, tons and tons of jellyfish in, this, in the water, but they were condoms. Oh. I heard my friends, this terrible double standard and this terrible treatment of women and 
you know, they wanted to screw everybody, but they didn't want anybody to screw their sister. I thought, this is so crazy. And girls that gave in were no good, even to them. So coming out as gay just wasn't an option in the 50s? Oh, it was not an option. It was actual isolation and a terrible, terrible life if you did it. I mean, I knew a few people that did it, and we had two fags in our neighborhood. And, and even now you're calling them fags, because yeah, that's what everyone would have called them. that's what they were yeah. then. There was Freddie the fag who lived in my building. He had a very sad life. He had eyes like a deer, you know, that uh, a traffic light would go on. And he was always nervous, because he didn't want trouble. Nobody gave him trouble. They were all really nice people if you lived quietly. But why do you have to live so quietly? I mean, he was always afraid there may be a fight breaking out in his house or something. And then he was in trouble. Because now he had brought the trouble in, as long as you were quiet. And then it was Freddie the Fruit, who was rich. So Freddie the Fag and Freddie the Fruit, it just tells you how people thought then. I knew that boys that I hung around with were going to Freddie the Fruit's apartment, supposedly to look at a stamp collection. They invited me once, and I really did look at the stamp collection. I ruined it for everybody. <laughs> they were going to beat me up downstairs. It was horrible. Because they said, well, you had to look at those goddamn stamps, right? Because they all wanted to make money. I just thought, this world, how can this be? But things started giving me away right away. But nonetheless, because I was, I knew I had to have a sport, because I didn't play sports. So I chose horse racing, because I always heard of people, because I never had to ride a horse in front of them. And they respected any sport I would create. They would give me all the benefit of the doubt. They weren't bad boys. They were more trapped than I was by their heterosexuality. You know, because if they got a woman pregnant, they were going to have to marry her. Their lives were going to be ruined. Her life was going to be ruined. It was just an ugly, ugly world. So you pretended to be a big horse racing fan? Oh, a big horse racing fan because, you know, I did go to the racetrack. My aunt always took me. But my sister had a very beautiful cape, a blue cape with red lining. And because my mother was in a wheelchair. And one day they sent me to the store, but everybody left except my mother because she was in the chair. And I thought, well, this was my chance. I put the cape on. My mother tried, she could hardly speak, she tried to stop me. Nothing could stop me. I went to Emma's, the um, Italian grocer, which was a wonderful place to go. She didn't say anything. She just looked at me. And I had my little pocketbook and I gave her the change for some pistachio nuts, I remember, and a quarter pound of a Sicilian salami. I'll never forget it. By the time I got home, the phone was ringing. And it rang all day. The whole neighborhood was calling. And my father, you know, came home and he said, well, what's going on? I said, well, I just wore the cape. And he said, you can't wear that cape. It's a girl's cape. I said, well, I didn't know. I mean, you know, I just wore the cape. I didn't have a jacket. I didn't know where it was. Well, my father, you know, forgave me. And the neighborhood calmed down. It was just an incident. But I knew. I learned something. If they didn't, never do that again. Ever. Keep it a secret. Keep it secret. And I even watched myself more. I made sure my pinky didn't raise when I drank coffee. I made sure I looked at my fingernails the way a boy does, not a girl. Looked at the back of my foot the way a boy does, not a girl, you know. Because that was being raised by straight people, and I realized, you know, they're training me to live in their world. I might as well take advantage and learn and hide. But you eventually did find your own world, didn't you? Oh, I did. And it's quite significant. Go on. Well, the worst one. (sighs) My father was very nice. You know, he bought me Indians. I loved Indians. A very expensive set of little iron Indians. Any child would have been happy. I was happy until my sister opened her gift, a dollhouse. (laughs) I collapsed. I collapsed. I cried for 48 hours in the bed. 
And my grandmother, who was Sicilian with her shawl and her gold earrings, she stayed over the bed and prayed with her rosary. My father didn't know what to do. And my father was an Anglo-American. So he, you know, he, he was seduced by Sicilian culture, so he always lived with, he lived with the Italians. And uh, he didn't know what to do. So he, he, he gave me all this money. It was, I think it was $20 back then. It was a fortune. And he said, go to the store and buy anything you want, anything. I then realized what I could do. I said, okay, and I stopped crying. He was relieved. I went to the store and I bought a big chuck wagon. It had horses, but the chuck wagon also had a little spot where you could put like this kind of fake food in and everything. And I took my sister's doll furniture and made a living room and a little kitchenette, put a string on it, and had a mobile home. <laughs> That's when I remember my father saying, I give up. <laughs> I, he sat down, he said, I give up. But my father, after that, really did give up. If I asked for a butch toy, I could get it. I would have to use my allowance, which was generous, for all my other to toys. But it was a deal. My f I wouldn't make trouble, I wouldn't carry on, and my father would go along with it. And he, always, he did keep that deal. He kept that deal all the way through. But I had to come out one day, officially, because what was the point of everybody knowing if they didn't know? I decided, well, you know, I was 16 and this is going to have to be announced. This can't be, can't be understood anymore. So I told my father, he was great. I told my mother, my sister was great. She always knew. I had to tell my grandmother, who was a, like a Zingara, like a gypsy. She was like something that came off a beautiful Italian olive oil can. You didn't want to puncture those kind of cans and you didn't want to puncture her. She was a real old matriarch with her shawl, her gold earrings, her dark skin, her black hair. She spoke of Italy, timeless Italy. And I said to her, I said, Grandma, I said, you know, you're the last person I have to tell. I'm a homosexual. She said, oh, what is that? What? I said, I'm gay. Well, what is that? Why? What? Why not be? And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm a fairy. She said, oh, I told your mother when you were born. I told your mother you'd be blessed. I told your mother you'd never have trouble with women. <laughs> and I came out. So your family seemed like they were quite happy. Oh, they were very happy. Yeah. yeah. And this was what year? Oh, that was 66. 1966? Yeah. yeah, okay. So not necessarily a brilliant time to be gay in New York. No, but it, to have your parents backing was very, very important. But don't forget, I did things for them. I took care of my mother, you know. It was not a trade-off. You know, in a sense, you're doing this for me, I'm doing this for you. It was a trade-in with love. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a very, very lucky, because you know, all gay people could come to my house. Drag queens would come to my house before I could even come out. My sister always knew some, because she went to Fashion High. And they would put on shows for my mother. They showed she was an invalid. Four of them come over. They doll up. We'd make a stage. They would make a stage. My father came home one day, and he had to just grab a seat. You could have charged to come around your place. Oh, you wouldn't have believed it. They had gardenias in the hair and these soulful singers. Yeah. Oh, it was great. And I knew, you know, I wanted to be part of this great cultural endeavor, this great cultural world. I was so well paid for my suffering, culturally, that nothing mattered. And already I had known that, you know, I, I went to Europe in 1964, and I went to Dachau, and there was a museum there. And of course, I was ready to see the yellow patch and, you know, the Jews and, you know, and, and all this terrible sorrow. But it was the first time I saw the pink patch.
I couldn't believe it. I was 14, 16, and um, I realized that this wasn't just haphazard. This was systematic. And the man near me said to his wife, well, Hitler wasn't wrong about everything. There was such sympathy for the killers and the haters. I couldn't believe what he said. From then I wanted to fight. And the only one I could fight was to exaggerate myself, to force them to see me as a gay person. Of course, it was a femme, feminine person. Maybe that wasn't the ideal for a lot of people, but it was the only thing I had. Mm. So that's why you got into drag? Yes, because now I could really try. It was called plucking nerves. For the first time, we couldn't do it in the 50s, we would go to Macy's counter, makeup counter, and put on makeup because there was no law against it. Destroy the entire department store. Security guards didn't know what to do. I thought a slash of red crimson lipstick could do this to them. They didn't know whether to call the police. They tried to speak to us to remove us. We did what we did. All the queens, as tough as they were, all agreed, let's go. We would gather together, we'd go to the zoo. No one would look at the animals. Because now there was 14 of us, it's very hard to attack us now. And these were tough queens. These are some ghetto queens. They weren't not to be played with, and everybody knew it. You could beat them up, and you're going to get hurt. We would go to the museum, and no one looked at the art. You know, (laughs) it was go to the beach on the train. It was like... But it's kind of safety in numbers. There was tremendous safety in numbers. We knew that. Gay people intrinsically know a great deal about survival. You know, and if they don't, they learn quickly. I remember one incident. I, I used to wear it as a Dora Duncan scarf, six feet scarf. I would let fly. I had a peekaboo hairdo, and uh, I was going up 86th Street with the, with the museum with Bertie, the great fighter. And uh, there was a cop taking down the um, barricades, horse. They were called horse barricades. And uh, he went, oh, to me. And I said, oh, I said, I didn't know you could be like that and be on the police force. I paid no mind. I walked four blocks down to the museum. As I got to, all of a sudden, like a tourniquet, he had grabbed the back of my scarf, he had followed me, and twisted it till I turned blue as a surf, a smurf, and said, don't you ever talk to a decent person like that again. The other cop grabbed Bertie. On trouble, Bertie was enjoying it, the cop was unbelievably gorgeous, and that ruined everything. And I looked over at Bertie, oh my God, you know, but I was in more in trouble than he was. It was always like that. The incident was never completely one way or the other. It was either half humorous and half not. And uh, when I took that tourniquet off, I had a scar as if I had been strangled and I was, someone had saved me at the last minute. People congratulated the policeman. They thanked him very much for doing what he did. So I said, that's it, I'm going into the museum. Because Bertie said, let's go home. I said, I'm not going home, I'm going into the museum. And I saw a lot of the people outside, they saw me with a red, my neck was so red, it was unbelievable. But I saw the art, me and Bertie discussed it, we enjoyed ourselves, and I left. I would never give in, I would never give in. And that's not the sort of thing you can complain about, is it really? No, no. You can't report the police to the police. Or then you couldn't. So even when I see the police now, being kind, I still cannot have a feeling of trust. I can be polite, but not friendly. Well, we're sat in Central Park at the moment, and earlier you said you actually came out in this park, yes. but by that you mean this is the first place you met other gay men. Right. This is the first time I met a crowd, mm. and it was fascinating, exciting. I was a teenager. It was a wooded area. Even my father couldn't find me with his cab. <laughs> I mean, and it was great. It was a great society. It was a great society in which I learned so many things, because all these queens knew something about opera or something. 
And in those days, we still had the old platonic thing of an older person always trying to teach you something, uh, trying to transfer at least cultural knowledge, because you always somehow gay people always thought that would make you survive. And they still did that then. I don't know if they do it today. I'm sure they probably do. But then it was very, very vital, because they were teaching us the ropes. But their ropes had become thin and broken. We had to find new, new cords. That's why we didn't really look up to them, because they had accepted this, and we did not accept this. And you didn't want to stay in, hiding in the bushes in Central Park. You wanted to go to no, the bars. You wanted to go to the village. It was like Nirvana. It was like, oh, here we are, open on the street, and we can do this, and we carry on. There's more interesting people. I mean, people that created the theater of the ridiculous, a new kind of humor. There's a great cultural aspect to the Stonewall thing that's never discussed. But these queens had it. So can we take you back to that night then, June the 28th, 1969? Where were you, and what happened? Well, I was going to Stonewall. It was the most popular bar in the gay world, or the gay city. It had dancing so it was the most unusual bar. But it had its problems, too. Uh, you just couldn't go in. You had to pass a kind of security doorman. But uh, I was on my way, and I ran into a friend of mine who said, you're not getting in. I was just there. And uh, we were like what was called scare drag. And scare drag is not full drag. It's sort of like Boy George. Okay. Okay, you could, you know, within three minutes, someone would know I was a boy, but not at first. They just didn't want any more scare drags in there. And uh, he said, well, you know, we're not getting in. I said, okay. So it was already past 11 and near 12, midnight. And uh, we decided, well, let's plan what we're going to do. Because the night was young for us. Mm. Yeah. And uh, there was a commotion down the block. We were up the block from Stonewall on a stoop. I was on my way. Someone mentioned a raid. And I listened to the people behind me. And there was a crowd behind me moving away. So we all heard it, and we all looked, and we went to Stonewall. And the moment I got there, there was trouble. A raid was very interesting to us um, because often the drag queens put on a show or uh, you would watch people get arrested. It was sort of fun. I mean, there was no camaraderie in that sense. You're just glad it wasn't you, so now let's watch the show. But the show wasn't very pretty. Sometimes there were men who were, had jobs, had wives, you know, that were caught. It was voyeurism and kicks. But what happened in terms of the, the incident with the police? Did you see a lot well, of the violence kick off? This was the most different night mm. of all. I mean, Judy Garland had died. Everybody knew someone that was beaten, arrested, or some story. The story started piling up. But still, it didn't seem like anything unusual until I got to in front of Stonewall. There was a paddy wagon. And a cop was pushing a drag queen in. I didn't see her, but I saw her chew. It was like a famous John Crawford come fuck me pump. It was paste jewels, it was straps, it was high heeled. I never forgot it because I just saw it. I was mesmerized by that. And he kicked him and pushed him back. He got his revenge. He went back into the paddy wagon and you could hear bone against metal. And uh, he closed the door, it was full, and they left. And he looked at us, as they always did, and said, all right, you faggots, now get the fuck out of here. You saw the show. Something happened. We didn't move. He was an ugly police officer. And he had that horrible face that he knew what he was doing. He was arrogant. He enjoyed what he was doing, even though it was routine for him. And he just thought he could turn his back on us and that would be it. But something happened. And the riot started at different spots, even in a small space, in the same space. 
And we did not move away. We took a step forward, all of us, at once, without communicating. I took another step forward and another step. I could see the hairs raised on the back of his neck. He turned around to repeat the order. But there was must have been a look in our faces. It was almost as if we were liberated from Dachau and now we had our oppressors under our control. They were so many of us. You were angry. Well, we didn't even know yet. And he gulped, he blinked, and the ride was on. And then all hell broke loose. Everybody had started throwing pennies, because those were called coppers, copper pennies to the cops. Anything we had, except our keys or anything valuable, we threw. The riot was just on. It was just this, all of this anger. I wouldn't say hatred, but anger came out. And all of a sudden, and without any precedent, leaders arose. The toughest queens, the toughest scared rare queens, took control. This one queen whom I just admired was up on the Stonewall window, egging us on with this firm face. I had never seen a face like that with such intensity. And don't forget, they're very poor queens, very poor. She jumped down, grabbed a uh, parking meter, a number of people helped, because the police now ran into the bar and closed the bar and started ramming the door to smash it. Another gay guy, I don't know how he got it, I thought he was peeing on the door as an insult because he was spraying up and down, but it was lighting fluid. And he nonchalantly lit a match and threw it over his shoulder, and the door went up. There were people inside? There were the police. Nobody even thought if there were any gay people inside. You just see and you react, and that's what happened. I don't think there were many gay people inside, because they'd all taken away in the paddy wagons, but that wasn't figured out. The adrenaline and the need to react to this invasion was very important, and somehow we all realized that the most important thing was to keep it going. You see, we were always attacked. It was a city sport to attack gay people. And we always knew how to regroup and get together again once we were scattered. We did not know how much this would help us during the riot because we became very good guerrilla fighters, urban guerrilla fighters. So how long did it go on for? It was days, wasn't it? Yes, but the main thing was a spontaneous night, mm. 28. Because then it was known what we did, and people came in, you know, to do their part or to show support, but that night was truly spontaneous. And it continued, but we knew the village, like the Indians or the Mohawks or the Iroquois, knew the forest. And the police did not know the village as well as we did, because they were in and out of uh, different departments, they were reassigned. They could not catch us, and we just kept it going. And the geography favored us, favored us more than it favored uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, favored uh, the, the, the Vietnamese. I mean, we just knew what to do. My best friend, Bertie Rivera, a black Puerto Rican, who was very, very militant. Bertie really always wanted to react to incidents. This time was Bertie's night. And I'm telling you, I was more afraid of Bertie than it was of the police. It was like being in Stalin's army. It was either fight the police in front of me or deal with Bertie behind me. <laughs> And I'd rather fight the police in front of me. You should have seen Bertie's face. Finally, it was his night, and I let him have it. The worst thing in a riot is silence. And the riot went silent. Not a peep, not a pin, but a hoofing sound, a stormtrooper sound. And all of a sudden, the crowd parted, and there was the tactical police patrol, armed to the teeth. I mean, I couldn't believe it. There was no part of their body if it threw something that it would hit. They were shielded, they were dressed, 
They had every piece of equipment. Yeah, and you were there in drag. Oh yeah, we just were in all... your in your frocks. Yes. Yeah. And the, they did not know what to do. They just saw us, these queens, and we were in the middle, the, the scared drag queens, because we were the best fighters. And they just stood there, and we stood there. We didn't know what to do. It was as if two alien people had just seen each other for the first time. And I heard, even in the discoveries of the South Pacific, they usually stared at each other before they reacted. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. But what we could do was form a kick line. And we sang one of our ditties, We Are The Village Girls. So we did this kick line like the Rockettes, and we sang, We Are The Village Girls. We wear our hair and curl. We wear our dungarees above our Nelly knees. And when it comes to boys, we really hit my And that's as far as we got. Because they charged. They had, what could they do? They charged at men wearing dresses singing. Yes. It sounds surreal. They had to do something. Mm. It was too humiliating for them. Mm. The super butch facing the super femme. <laughs> you know, it was a world that either was going to create a circle or fall apart. And uh, they got me in the back. Not badly. I mean, I, I was could gonna feel. going to say, you must have been injured then. Well, I was scraped by a club. Mm. But you could, it was war. You know, you look later. You know, I felt this thing though. But they could not catch us. And the riot went on and on. It was amazing. Somebody would leave the riot without letting us know and bring back ammunition. Maybe it would be orange peels from a, a, an orange juicer a shop nearby. It doesn't sound much compared to what the New York police force probably had. Oh, no, no, no. But we threw them. We threw everything we had. And then coming close to daylight, there was a change in the sky. It was over. It was over for the police. It was over for us. I sat on a stoop, exhausted. I looked across from me, there was this queen sitting on a stoop, totally exhausted. Six feet away was a policeman, exhausted. No longer enemies, but never friends. And as the sky lit up, all the debris, all the smashed glass, looked like diamonds catching the early part of the sun. I never saw one of the most beautiful sights, even though it was man-made. But that was the end of the riot for that night. And people always cite the riot, don't they, and say that that was the turning point for LGBT rights. Do you think that's an exaggeration, or do you think that night changed our community's history forever? Yes, I mean, another gay veteran, Danny Garvin, said that after that we were a people. I think that's rather accurate. What it was was a slow evolving, but a definite change of mind. That's what really changed. Our attitude changed. Even when I got home, my father said, it's about time you guys did something. So what do you think now in uh, the end of June where you see thousands of LGBT people parade through the streets of New York, through all different cities in the US, and they do it p because of Stonewall? How does that make you feel? Oh, wonderful that out of this evolves such a positive thing. But it was always in gay people. You know, it was an anti-police riot, not an anti-straight riot. Mm. And, you know, from all the things we threw, I think we injured each other more than we did the police because we weren't exactly baseball players. So when a brick was thrown, it normally hit another queen. <laughs> Which we laughed at a week later. So the riot was a very gay riot. It was beautifully choreographed. It had really some beautiful memories to it. It was full of highlights. But we did not know this was a victory. We did not know anything. So, Martin, do you still go to Stonewall? I mean, it's still there, it exists I as a bar. I go to Stonewall more than I ever have gone, and yeah. there's no reason to. It's <laughs> not what it was. No, it's a place to stop. You should go, you should have a drink, you should look, you should enjoy. But for me, it's not the same thing. I mean, this was a very crude bar. It didn't even have running water. Really? Yeah. So everybody drank bottled beer.
unless you wanted hepatitis. <laughs> yeah. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. Thank you. And I'm going to go and have a beer without hepatitis now, hopefully. <laughs> thank you. On behalf of everyone who's LGBT+, plus, thank you for fighting for our rights at Stonewall. And thank you for taking the torch and continuing this, because this is just as much a fight as I did. To put into words just how grateful I am for Martin. Not just for chatting to me in Central Park on a recent visit, but for having the bravery to fight back all those years ago. A move that could have seen him badly injured or even arrested, but a move that really did help lead to a more tolerant and free society for all of us in the LGBT community. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us there at Come Out Stories. I'm Emma Goldswell, and Coming Out Stories is a What Goes On media production. Next time you'll hear from Saski. She's a singer and a Pride host, and she also works for Educate and Celebrate. She did struggle, though, coming out at school, and initially came out as bisexual because she thought it would be easier. Her dad, though, had possibly the best reaction I've ever heard to a child coming out. I went home and I was thinking, if my parents are still up, then I'm going to go into their bedroom. I think I was about 18. I'm going to go into their bedroom and uh, I'm going to tell them. Anyway, so I walked upstairs. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I opened my parents' bedroom door. The light was off. I was like, yes. And as I closed the door back, went to shut the door, my mum went, what do you want? And I went, oh, God.